Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way that is followers of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went in his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Imagine the, the kind of reaction in Ananias's dream at that point. Saul. For behold, Saul is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples of Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a ladder, a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, remember Barnabas, the great encourager? Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It 
multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Now, two things I want us to do uh, this morning. Firstly, to consider the significance of Saul's conversion. And then secondly, and more briefly, to summarize our series on Acts as we come to conclude it. Firstly, the significance of Saul's conversion. And there you'll see some headings in the service sheet. The significance of this man's conversion. Its uh, significance is made clear in lots of ways, but one way uh, from the fact that Luke includes three accounts of it in his gospel, in his uh, book uh, Acts, here in chapter 9, and then again in chapter 22 and in chapter 26. Three times Luke records the significance of this particular conversion. Beyond that, its significance is seen in lots of ways. Firstly, the timing, when he was converted. Now, think of the big picture narrative of Acts. We've seen this a number of times. We've pointed it out. The big picture narrative of Acts, it begins with that wonderful promise, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, chapter 1 and verse 8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. A promise from the Lord Jesus is how the book of Acts, or how the church in history began. And how does Acts end? Chapter 28, verse 28, Paul has reached Rome, the capital of the ancient world, the center of the Gentile world, Rome, Rome to which and from which every road led every road to the world. And the Apostle Paul makes a statement that Luke records, verse 28 of chapter 28 in Acts. Therefore, this is the Apostle Paul, Saul, Paul, same person. This is the one of whom his conversion we read this morning. Paul's statement at the end of Acts, therefore let it be known to you that salvation has gone to the Gentiles. Jesus' promise has been fulfilled. And Luke's closing words at the very end of Acts, Paul lived in Rome two whole years and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching with boldness and without restriction. Now, that's the big picture narrative of Acts. At one end, the promise that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. At the other end, the fulfillment of that promise, it has. And in between chapters 1 and chapters 28, in between the promise and its fulfillment, there are a number of significant points or significant moments, none more so. And uh, this one, I think, tops the list, none more so than the conversion of Saul. Chapter 8 marks the most intense period of persecution against the church. I guess the devil or the prince of this world, the opponents of the gospel, knew something was up. The most intense period of persecution, chapter 8. Chapter 8 also records the first significant geographical movement of the gospel from the city of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. 
It is at this significant moment in the fulfillment of God's plan when the stakes could not have been higher that God acts in an astonishing and surprising and powerful way to advance His plan. He converts Saul. And we thought a a moment ago about the beginning and end of the book as a whole, the big picture. Just look uh, with me at the beginning and end of this little section in Acts. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. There arose on that day a great persecution. They were all scattered. Pretty bad. Turn on to chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The church ravaged. The church walking in the fear of the Lord had peace and multiplied. What comes in between? The conversion of Saul. The key event. At this critical point, God intervened in an astonishing way. And uh, God has done that and still does that. At critical points in the history of the church, He acts in astonishing ways, often surprising ways to advance the gospel. God has always been and remains sovereign. Never doubt His sovereignty. Never doubt the fact that He is in control. Never doubt Him. And that He acts decisively at critical points to advance the gospel. The significance of His conversion, its timing. Second, who He was. Saul was the chief persecutor of the church. Stephen's martyrdom, the one who stoned Stephen, chapter 7, verse 58, laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his death. Chapter 8, verse 3, Saul ravaged the church. What an epitaph! He ravaged the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul is not content simply with clearing the Christians out of Jerusalem. He got wind of the fact that the Christians who had been scattered in Judea and Samaria were preaching the gospel. And so we find him at the beginning of chapter 9 on a mission to root out the Christians who had been scattered through Judea and Samaria. Chapter 9 and 1, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And you can picture Saul nearing Damascus on his journey, his face, his mind, heart, resolute, set, determined for the task ahead, a steely, zealous determination to root out these Christians and destroy them. And this is the man that God converts. A surprising candidate for conversion, to say the least. Humanly speaking, it is impossible to conceive that this man could be converted, given he is so set opposed to the gospel. Humanly speaking, it is impossible to conceive 
not only that he could be converted, but that God would convert this man, that God would be gracious enough, merciful enough, powerful enough to convert a man so hell-bent, which is a literal description of who he was, on destroying the Christians. How on earth could God convert that man? Surely if he could, he would not except that crying out to us from this eyewitness historical account of the birth of the church, the fact that he did convert that man. And what can we learn from this? Well, Luke's emphasis on the significance (coughs) of this particular conversion, Saul's conversion, in the advance of God's salvation plan. That's the primary point. This is an unusual and significant conversion. The chief antagonist, the chief opponent, becomes the chief proclaimer, the chief advocate in the church. But doesn't it also impress on us the power of God and the power of the gospel? That if God could convert Saul, he can convert anyone. The people you know and I know who think who we think will never be converted. Let me just reel you back if your mind has drifted. And let me encourage you to mark this fact in your mind. We just do not believe, humanly speaking, that people we know who are not Christians can be converted. And the Lord Jesus wants us to mark in our minds, looking at the Apostle Paul and his conversion, that they can. Does it not give us the confidence to invite people to carol services? It is possible they will be converted. Maybe not then, but a seed might be sown in their hearts. And one other dimension of the power of God, the power of the gospel in converting a man like Saul is the freedom of God, the freedom of God to convert whom he will. His power means his freedom from normal human categories of what is possible or probable. We often, I think, have a very good idea in our minds of who we think it will be possible for God to convert. Be careful of that and let God be God. Let him work where he will. Be open about our faith, open to the fact that God may well convert the people we don't think He will. So I encourage us with the carol services to invite many, many, not a few. Watch God at work. And does Saul's conversion, the man he was, not also impress upon us the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God? God converted Saul to advance his plan, absolutely. God converted Saul to show us his power, the power of the gospel, yes. But I think God converted Saul just as much out of the goodness of God's heart, a heart of infinite grace and mercy to bring this man into his kingdom. So how do you view the conversion of Saul? It is significant in the history of the church, but God does not have a forensic bone in his body. God does not have a a calculating born in his body. God converted Saul because God wanted Saul 
to live for eternity with the Lord Jesus out of his mercy and his kindness and his grace. God doesn't convert people to show us how smart he is. He converts people because he loves people. And that gives us confidence that even to those who oppose God in the gospel, grace and mercy is offered. He is kind, he is gracious, he is merciful to those who oppose the gospel. In some ways, I think that the gracious mercy and power of God often has to work against the church. Our categories of who will be and who should be converted. The kind of man he was. And uh, significance of his conversion is also seen in how he was converted. His conversion is unusual. Look at what happened. Chapter 9 and verse 3, as he, Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. That's unusual. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? A ring a bell, maybe in the Old Testament, burning bush, Moses, Moses, Saul, Saul, significant moment. And the voice of the living, risen Jesus, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's a striking question loaded with indictment. Saul, in persecuting the church, is persecuting the Lord Jesus. Opposing the gospel is to oppose the Lord Jesus. Now, that rips the rug out from under people's feet. I will not become a Christian because of the church. That is no excuse. Humanly, it's a good excuse often. But to say no to the gospel, to say no to the message of the church, is to say no to the Lord Jesus. It's a striking question, and Saul's response also a question is striking. Who are you, Lord, he says. It seems he knew it was Jesus. And in calling Jesus Lord, there is from Paul humility. How did Saul know it was Jesus later in Acts? When Saul looks back on these chapters, these events, chapter 26, he adds something. Let me read to you from Acts 26, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard to kick against the goads. What's a goad? A goad is a cattle prod. It's a great description in Acts of the Holy Spirit. A cattle prod, like an electric uh, cattle prod. How do you get a cow to go where you want it to go? Use a cattle prod. That's not very PC in a city, but if we were in a farming community, you'd say, well, that's fine. How does God bring somebody like Saul and you and I to the point where we recognize who Jesus is and seek the forgiveness that he offers, the Holy Spirit pricking, goading, moving us in our conscience to turn to the Lord Jesus? What had caused Saul to begin to doubt his convictions? Perhaps it was watching the way that Stephen died Perhaps it was watching a Christian in the way that they lived. Perhaps it was because these Christians that he sought to ravage, he could not keep them down. He could not keep their mouths shut. They just proclaimed the gospel without fear of life and limb. Paul began to question even subconsciously that Jesus really was God. God had been at work by the Holy Spirit And now Paul is stopped in his tracks by the living Christ 
He falls to the ground, a picture of abject weakness and humility before the living God and all the human categories we can muster of justice and equity and fairness would say that God, with his man now on the ground, would zap him with some lightning bolt. But Jesus said to him, rise, get up from your knees and enter the city and you will be told what to do. There is another man in Acts 9 that we meet, Ananias, an ordinary Christian believer who's told to go to Saul. (laughs) One of my Bible commentators suggests that uh, it may be that the text suggests that Ananias is slightly reticent. I think, uh, to put it mildly, (laughs) you get these very striking little pictures, though, when... God speaks to believers in Acts, and he says, go, and, and he went, did it. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, hear the first words, the first words Saul hears from a Christian, brother, isn't that great? The first words he hears, brother Saul. The first words he hears from a man that he had journeyed to Damascus to root out and imprison. Brother. The Lord Jesus, verse 17, who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Now, Saul's conversion experience was unusual in many respects. The way he was converted, the light, the voice, his blindness, the scales from his eyes, other aspects, unusual, unusual, not prescriptive or normal. Its significance in the history of God's plan is the point. And while that is true, there are principles nonetheless that are normal in every conversion. One, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, always. A realization under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of the need of forgiveness. There's all sorts of articles flying around the press this week from certain prominent clergymen to say that becoming a member of Christ's church is something that you can work out in cyberspace, through social media. It's nothing to do with social media, it's to do with the Holy Spirit convicting people of forgiveness, of a realization that this man, the Lord Jesus, whom I always thought was a great teacher or a figure in history, is the Son of God, is the Savior of humanity, is the Lord and Christ. And the Holy Spirit brings, like Paul, a humility in our hearts before Jesus and understanding. I was blind but now I see. My heart was hard, but now it is soft and open. My ears were stopped, but now they are unstopped, and I hear. These things happen in every conversion. It may happen in a relatively short period of time like Saul. It really does. It does happen, mostly over a longer period of time. The Spirit's work in our lives 
And here's the point when you wrap up that whole picture of how somebody becomes a Christian. No human being, no amount of persuasion, no amount of answers to the toughest questions can ever make any of these things happen in anyone's life. It is the supernatural agency and work of God. It is God who convicts. It is God who brings people to realize they need forgiveness. It is God who humbles us. It is God who opens our blind eyes to see. Only, 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 and ever God. So does that not liberate you and me just to be open and free about our Christian faith and let God be God? Fourthly, the significance of his conversion is seen in what he went on to do. Every single person's conversion leads to a commissioning to tell. But Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, had a very special commission. Chapter 9 and verse 15, the Lord speaking to Ananias, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the name of sake of my name. Notice the, 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 the connection of commission and suffering. To, them, to those God entrusts much, much will be called of them in terms of suffering for the sake of the gospel. That is true. And uh, look at verse 20. Immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. To be fair in Saul, he got off to a pretty tough start. He started preaching the gospel. And you can imagine the crowds thinking, He went to Jerusalem and the apostles, Peter says to John, you must be joking. Barnabas, 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 one of the seven, these guys, Philip, Barnabas, what does Barnabas do? He says, Peter, John, let me tell you what happened. He's not joking. This man is God's agent with the gospel to the world. And uh, the contrast could not be greater between the man Saul was and the man he became. Conversion is a life-changing, transforming event that is true of every single conversion. The significance of Saul's conversion in God's salvation plan. Now, in just the last five minutes, let me summarize for us our series in Acts. What are the main things we have learned? You'll see them there. Everything we have learned can be summarized with one word, and that word is certainties. The book of Acts was written to give Christians confidence, assurance, and certainties. Write these certainties on your fridge or on your heart. They are true. They are facts. They will happen. One, certainty about the fact that God's plan will be fulfilled. Remember the bookends, the beginning and end of Acts. Remember the bookends in the big sweep of history. Remember the bookends in the little bits of history. Chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 31. Ravaging the church. Peace in the church. The toughest of times. The clearest progress of the gospel. The promise of Jesus that the gospel will spread until he returns in every part of the world, in this part of the world, in this city, in this church, in your circles of friendships. God's plan is unstoppable. 
in its progress. I believe that. Hold fast to it with your whole heart. For there will be hard times in the church. Certainly, there will be hard times in the church. We have seen opposition to the gospel from outside the church, from the world, from inside the church. Hypocrisy, false teaching, opposition is real. Friction, difficulties, setbacks, discouragements are real, all too real. And when they come and they will, they will come to authentic living gospel churches the most. And when setbacks come, look at your fridge and be encouraged and do not be surprised. Do not be surprised and do not flinch. It is normal and take heart. Significant opposition and significant setbacks are very often, most often, the catalyst, the spur for the most significant advances. That has been true throughout the history of the church. Certainty about the fact also that God's plan advances when we tell the gospel. How does the gospel advance? When we tell the gospel. All through the book of Acts, we've seen the apostles, the gifted evangelists like Philip, ordinary Christians, telling the gospel here, there, and everywhere. And Acts says to the church, go and tell the gospel. That is how my plan advances. We have been studying Acts for a term. What has been going on in the life of this normal local church called Chalmers? Well, the gospel has been preached. We've had big questions events, quench events, Christianity explored, gospel partners who are telling the gospel, carol services. Why do we do that? Because God says his church will grow as the gospel is told. It's not about running events. It's about proclaiming the gospel in creative ways. We tell the gospel. God converts people. Certainty, and this is where we finish, about the fact that God's plan advances through conversions. That's the spearhead, the arrow point of church growth, people becoming Christians. And it is the work of God to convert people, the supernatural work of God, the power of the gospel at work in people's lives. My most memorable Sunday preaching through the book of Acts was when Steph and Joe were baptized as a very obvious, literal, and visual indication of conversion before our very eyes. That day they were baptized, somebody called Ed, who is marrying somebody in this church family, Ed's a soldier. He's back in Catterick. That day or the day before, he was converted as we study the book of Acts. And one of the most memorable comments I've ever heard from somebody who has just become a Christian, somebody asked him after the service, what was it that convinced you to become a Christian? This great big bloke, a soldier, he's a drummer. And he said, the Holy Spirit convinced me. Isn't that remarkable? Is he wrong or is he right? Before our very eyes. And he's going on with the Lord. 
We live for these Sundays. Now, I scored that out of my notes this week. And then I put it back in. Of course we live for these Sundays. What we're about as a church, people will keep on becoming Christians. They'll keep on becoming Christians. Maybe you're not a Christian. Some of you here aren't. And once again, the invitation comes to you to turn to Jesus for salvation and come on board His unstoppable plan for the progress of the gospel to the furthest nations of the earth until His Son, the Lord Jesus, comes again. Now, write these things on your fridge. Write them on your hearts and go and tell the gospel and let God confound your doubts and mine with what he will do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the book of Acts. It's great encouragement to us. We pray, Lord, that we will live, live in the world of Acts, live in this world, if you like, of the early church. And we pray, Lord, very specifically for the next two Sunday nights, these carol services. We pray for people like Ed who might come. Help us, Lord, to tell, to invite, to be free and open and warm and engaging. And trust that you will work supernaturally with power in many hearts. Make us an authentic church, we ask. And move the hearts, Lord, those who are here who are not yet Christians, by your Spirit, to lay hold of Christ for life, for forgiveness and for everlasting safety. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.